Father God, we come before your presence and your word on this warm summer day. We pray that it just gives life to us, that our faith grows in being before your word, so that we might be a people further engrafted in to the goodness and fullness of our faith. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. We pick up in the final verses of where we left off last week, that chiastic center of chapters 43 through 50 of Genesis, where the old man Jacob, now called Israel, doubly blesses the most powerful man by the world standards, the man who ultimately has ultimate authority at this moment in one sense, in an earthly sense, over the harvest, over the food supply for this region of the world. And Jacob blesses him. Israel blesses him. And yet as he blesses him, in the middle of that is his explaining that through his own life, he's made to be, been made to bear much hardship and evil. And we considered that last week. We considered how Israel had a life that was not filled with overwhelming ease, but actually it came at a great cost. There was a heavy price for Israel to bless Pharaoh, to bless Egypt. It came with a heavy dose of suffering both for him and his covenant family. There had been betrayals. There had been burials. There had been lies. There had been abuses. There had been adulteries. There had been threats. Even being maimed by God. Israel knew a life full of these things from the womb until now. And yet in the fullness of Israel's suffering, he had come to see how the road he had traveled, just like Joseph had in an earlier chapter, that hard road that Israel walked had meaning and purpose for others. It had meaning both for his immediate family, but it also had meaning for the world. Through the events of that part, hard road, a great multitude, nothing short of all the known kingdoms of the earth at that time were blessed. In the book of Hebrews in the New Testament in chapter 11, it actually later alludes to what is actually in the mind of the patriarchs in moments like this, in the hardship, in the suffering. And the preacher speaking of the faith of the patriarchs says that the patriarchs were able to endure in life the trials, the pains, the hardships by looking forward to a greater city and whose foundations would have it as its designer, its builder, God himself, that they just reveled in the joy that their household would actually be a part of this kingdom to come. Hebrews goes on to make clear that they all died in one sense, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, now Israel, having peace and assurance and knowledge in that. Even if they didn't understand all the particulars of how God would accomplish his promises, nonetheless, God had still given them assurances, and so they went into the grave, clinging to those assurances in faith that a kingdom would come by the hand of God and his will would be done for the covenant family of God. Doesn't that sound just a little bit like something we just prayed? The prayer that Christ gave us? In one sense, that prayer has in it, within it, an aspect of that patriarchal pattern that we're called to follow. And in further considering the suffering of Jacob, now named Israel, I want us to appreciate something else. 
Let us think about the who the first people were that Moses wrote these words to. It was the nation of Israel. They were a nation struggling under the hardships of sufferings, of trials, of pain for the name in which they bore, which was the name of Israel. And yet here in this passage, it would have been a great encouragement to them because they see how Israel, through his suffering, could bless the world. And thus, maybe they would dare say, through my suffering, maybe, the same God can bless the world. And the one in whose name I am called, in whose namesake I am named. They were able to look to him and say, if God can do for that Israel, that suffering one, if he can do all of that, bless so boldly, bless so abundantly in a time of famine, what might he be able to do with me as a son or daughter that bears Israel's names? And if you haven't made the connection yet, in whose namesake do you come here today bearing the name of? Not the legal name that you might have, but maybe you came here as an unbeliever, and if you are an unbeliever, I don't really believe an unbeliever exists. You, you're suppressing the truth and unrighteousness, but I would guess for the vast majority of us, we came here not referring to ourselves by the name of Israel, but referring to ourselves by the name of Christ. We still do have, just like the Old Testament Israelite has, a name that we bear. We bear the name of Christ. We understand ourselves to be Christians. And yet the question for us is then, could we see the correspondence between what the true Israelite would have had in Moses' day and what we call a Christian in our own day, that we are to be a people carrying the name of the one who was allowed to suffer. And yet through his suffering, the world was blessed. And the name of Christ promises times of suffering for ourselves as well. Those times, because they're connected to Christ's story, it has purpose. It has meaning. God can bless us all through the one in whose name we bear. God can bless all the known nations through us. We can be fruitful. We can multiply. Maybe you think I'm overstating the point, but we can see that actually Moses intended for this passage to speak uniquely to his original audience. And we can see that by verse 11. When Moses calls what has thus far been called the land of Goshen, we like it being referred to the land of Goshen because we're here in Goshen Haven, Goshen Hafen, a new name. He calls the land the covenant family settles in. He will later on in this passage call it Goshen again, but he refers to it as the land of Ramses. And we suddenly have to ask ourselves, why does Moses use a new name for the land all of a sudden? And the first thing you need to understand is the name of Ramses was not known at the world at this time in that kind of way. This was not called the land of Ramses. They had not had a pharaoh even named Ramses. The name of Ramses would be a later development. It was a name associated with the hardship and toil of the bondage of slavery that the Israelites would be made to bear. In one sense, what's going on here is a little bit like, imagine if I was able to go back in a time machine. I was able to see Queen Mary I. If you don't know who Queen Mary I, she's called Bloody Mary in history because of her persecution, her slaughter of Protestants. And if I may imagine, you know, in this time machine, I go before Mary and I go, you're no better than Adolf Hitler. 
what would Queen Mary say if she granted me, you know, a response? She'd be, who's Adolf Hitler? Because that name has no meaning in the time period of Joseph. It has no meaning in the time period of Jacob, but it does mean something to the ones who bear Israel's name. And it was a name of bondage. It was a name of hardship. And we don't know for certain if it was also the name of the Pharaoh at the apex of the Exodus battle. The word of God leaves that open, but it was a name that was associated with all kinds of struggle and suffering in the day of the Exodus narrative. And so Moses, in one sense, is weaving this story in a way that says, you see, our fortunes weren't always like this in this land. Actually, if you look at the fortunes of the unbeliever, of the Egyptian, of the Canaanite in this passage, and compare them to the fortunes of the covenant people, the people of Israel, they were especially blessed. They were uniquely blessed. They were doubly blessed in this time period, in a moment of crisis. And by the way, that still happens today. I remember it was, I think, a Christmas Eve two years ago. I talked about how in that first year of COVID, statistically speaking, the only group and segment of society in American society that were happier from one year to the next were the faithful Christian, the faithful believer. God works in a similar way, but Moses is allowing them to know about a time when it was better for them. Their fortunes were better in this land. That actually the land that he stood upon, it was a true Goshen. It was a true land. It was the best of all lands in all the world. It was the best place you could possibly be. And how was it the best place they could possibly be? To see that, you get hints of it actually in verse 11. It was through the favored son of Israel, the favored son of Joseph, he had been providing for the covenant family of God and his administration to the household, but also for Egypt. Everything they need, even within the household, the utterly dependent, those who could not provide for themselves at all, Moses takes care to mention. He, uh, Joseph makes sure they're well covered. They're well provided for. The passage lets the family of God know God used the favored son of Israel in order to provide for the people of God. In all the world. And all the world, in considering the work of God through that favored son of Israel, they loved for a period of time the family of Israel. And is that just me, or does that start to sound like something else from the Bible? That there is another favored son of Israel whose work blesses the entire world, first through his suffering, but also in, in sharing that with others and appreciating, so appreciate the fact that the work of Joseph, it, it was just coming into view for this family of Israel. They had been blind to it, but now they can see, they have eyes to see the masterful things that God has accomplished through this favored son. So this would have been an incredible reality for Jacob, for the 11 brothers to consider that to know that the whole world has their daily bread, food to eat, the whole known world through God's favored brother, through the, God using their favored brother. He meets the known world's daily bread needs. How extraordinary that must have been. And you know, you'd have to think as they began to appreciate that fact, they would have begun sharing that. It would change the course of their lifetimes 
they which might share that news with others, how God used their brother, the favored son of Israel, to minister those, that daily bread, and whom others would starve without. And doesn't this sound like another brother that we have through adoption? And he asks us to share this with others. Also, just appreciate the great source of encouragement Joseph would have been to Moses' original audience. You mean a single former shepherd, now slave, could bless the known world through the power of God? How encouraging that must have been to a people who were once shepherds, now slaves in the Exodus. And so with this in the backdrop, we then, starting in verse 13, ask how the other side's doing. We see how the present season of crisis and family, famine, how it begins to unfold for the unbeliever. And for the unbeliever, for the plain Joe Cairo off the street, they are struggling in their present moment in history. Their fortunes are still blessed by Joseph, but not blessed in the same way. And they begin to hand things over to the government. First goes the money. Then... Another year passes, then goes their possessions, and then they offer slavery. And a lot of times, people like to criticize Joseph for his administration in this time period. But that would be a misunderstanding for a few reasons. First off, Joseph stands as a mediator between Pharaoh and the people. And notice, even though they offer, they end up even offering the fullness of slavery to Pharaoh. Joseph, standing in the gap, he has a tax rate of 20% that he levies on. Who would like a tax rate of 20%? <laughs> so, so, in his standing in the gap, in his mean, the intermediary between the Pharaoh, he, he strikes a good deal that for both the people. But actually, the Bible is clear. It is not a fan of worldly monarchies. This is a system of feudalism that's set up, and that system had a purpose, and God ultimately will use it because when a king gets out of hand, he becomes a tyrant, and we're going to find a tyrant in Exodus. But the Bible makes clear it's not a fan of worldly monarchies. It's not a fan of worldly monarchies at all. Actually, if you go to the first book of Samuel, I believe chapter 8, you have the high priest Samuel warning the people of Israel. And what is he warning them against? Well, the people of Israel have gotten sick of waiting for their messianic king. It's not that Israel wasn't to wait for a king. It was to wait for the king who is the Messiah to come. And they got tired of doing that. And Samuel, speaking for God basically says, don't do this. Don't take on a worldly king. He's going to take your fields, take your land, tax you. He's going to make your sons and daughters slave. And the irony of Samuel speaking at that time is, you know, Israel had never tried true monarchy at that time. The only real instance that he would have in the scriptures, at least, to give him that wisdom 
would be, in one sense, looking to Genesis 47 and looking at the Exodus story and seeing how it got out of hand. But Israel, of course, did not heed his warning. And so they embraced it. And so don't look at this government that was established and say, oh, this, the point of this is to show us how governments should run. No, this is actually allowing those people in bondage to, to see the seeds of what would later be an oppressive system to them. But also, as Exodus will make clear at the beginning of that book, it won't become an oppressive system until people forget the wisdom of Joseph and people forget what the family of Israel blessed their society with. That's when things got really bad. I'm really, it's really fortunate, of course, we don't have to worry in our own day of half-truths and lies and slanders about Christianity in our own nation, right? But the reality is part of the wisdom that, that Moses would have been conveying to the people, it's when people forget the blessing of the covenant people, blessing of the salt of the earth that we're called to be. We're called to stand out. We're called to be distinct. We're called to taste different in the community of the faith of the world. When they decide that they no longer like that, they no longer want to hear from it, that's when real oppression can begin. And so take account of the kind of soil that allows for the bile weed of persecution to sprout forth. So what was the government Israel eventually decided? Well, I, just look at the book of Ruth. The book of Ruth is a great example. It was before there was a king of Israel. And think of Naomi. Naomi was a woman whose husband led them to Moab. He was basically worse than an unbeliever. And yet Naomi, after his death as a widow, as the most worthless in society, she had certain inalienable rights as a child of God, even as a woman in 1100 BC. And she could go to Judah and she could go to Bethlehem and she had a plot of land that God had set aside for her and her household. And Boaz was a righteous man because not only did he know this, but he also made sure that her household could go on forth having rights to that very same land. So the Bible you know, we, we do like politics, let's admit it. Bible here does give us opportunities to speak to politics. And the Bible is not advocating for this system that we see developing in Egypt. No, rather, the Bible is a system that gives us certain rights. He's the, he, remember, he's the God who goes to prepare a place for us. He goes to prepare a place for us. There's going to be location in heaven. In the heavenly place, that's ours. That's our address. So, what is going on here is Egypt in crisis has set aside so much to Pharaoh, given him so much more power and authority. And government, of course, will not often hand back that power and authority that's given to them. And yet, the people of God, in this moment at least, even with the receiving of the animals, they are being blessed. And so how does this all connect to Christ? Well, first off, let me say, more and more a country is going to tell us the way to make 
this place, a better place to live, is to forget about the God of Scripture. Remember, things will not get truly bad until the people of Egypt forget about what the God of Scripture does for them. I doubt I'm the only one who now quite often find myself reading disparaging things insulting the Christian worldview. I had to laugh two weeks ago. It talked about a rise of a new kind of Christianity, one that advocated for, you know, only marital relationships between a man and a woman and all this stuff. And they ended up just describing biblical Christianity. And they're pretending it's something new and not something 2,000 years old. I even, we live in a time and place that's trying to separate the good things that the people of God bring to society from the benefit of a society. And so push back on that. Do not allow that to become your narrative. Do not believe that lie. Yet also, fellow Christian, remember the story behind the name we bear. We bear the name of one whom the governments conspired against even unto death. But also the name we bear, Christ, he became sin for us so that we through him might become his righteousness. He's an intimate God who knows us by name and desires us to be fruitful and multiply in every season. That's in part why it's such a blessing to be able to carry his name in this life. And he cares for us each individually and he provides for us the daily bread we need. And he continues to do remarkable things in this world, in his name, through suffering, and so in our following the pattern of life that he has set before us, in our following the work that the namesake of the one we bear has given to us, we further can not only just be a blessing to society, but we can see how blessed we are to have the assured hope that one day, now a day sooner than yesterday, we will walk into that great celestial city to come, just like the patriarchs will a place that is prepared for us, where we can rest from the hard work, the suffering, the toil of this life, and instead enter into the rest of his kingdom that is to come. Amen? Amen. Let us pray. Father God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the fact that you give us the high honor on this earth of bearing your name as a Christian. Help us when we want to complain, when we want to murmur, when we want to get angry at the circumstances that we find ourselves in. Help us to remember the hope that the patriarchs had. To remember that through suffering, they could be a blessing unto the nations. That it wasn't the things of this world that they looked forward to. It was that greater celestial kingdom to come. Help us to be guided by that, to be changed by that, to, to to when we want to complain, when we want to groan, when we want to say, why, Lord? We dare to say, rather, why have you been so gracious to me, a sinner? Why have you allowed me to have a portion in such a great and wonderful inheritance? Why, even if I find this land a more difficult land into which to live, why have you prepared a place, a far better place, in which you will be our king? And we will praise you as Lord of Lords. Amen.